The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Second Peter chapter 1, if you'll turn there. Looking tonight at Second Peter chapter 1, I want to read verses 1 through 15 and especially focus our study on verses 3 to 11. Second Peter chapter 1, a great epistle. We're going to look at the beginning of it here tonight. Let us hear God's word. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Father, we pray for your help as we seek to Uh, engage with your word as we seek for its truth to penetrate our hearts and to speak to our lives, to convict us of sin and to build us up in faith in Christ. Help us in this time we have now. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. Christians are called to live godly lives. Godliness is a general word used by the Bible's authors, to summarize 
the behavior expected of Christians. The word literally means good worship, eusebia in the Greek, good worship. And we might think of it as describing Christ-like behavior flowing out of knowing Christ. It's a summary. Christians are to be godly. They are to practice godliness because they know God. It involves our heart, our worship, what we love, what we desire, and it involves our behavior, our actions, our words, our deeds. It involves root and fruit. We might define godliness as a Godward life that shows up in the way we live. A Godward life is a life oriented to God, trusting God, loving God, believing in Him, obeying Him. A Godward life that shows up in the way you and I live. A life oriented to God through faith in Christ, which bears much fruit. Think of just all the things we can be so easily oriented to in the place of God. I don't want to pick on the Phillies because they've already lost, so I know that Phillies fans are already in mourning for that. But, you know, if somebody's a big Phillies fan, then they're oriented toward the Phillies. They're wearing their, you know, their baseball cap or their Phillies, whatever it is, their shirt, and, and they're uh, very much aware of how the team is doing and how all the players are, if any of them are injured, and they're maybe even online finding out more data about the coach or something like that, the manager. And uh, maybe they're daydreaming about the Phillies, not this year, but next year, you know. It's always next year, thinking about that. And so, you know, they're depressed when the Phillies lose in the first round of the playoff. Seems like it's becoming an annual event in the fall. But um, you could be oriented to, to anything. Maybe some of you young folks are oriented toward social networking, connecting to your friends and texting and Facebook and all that. And it's just part of your life. And you, you read about people, young folks nowadays, going on a media fast for a day or two or three days without the connections, you know, without texting, without all these things, without tweeting and twittering and all of that, whatever that is. And um, so maybe you're oriented toward that world of your peers and your friendships, or maybe you're oriented toward your yard and fixing up your yard and making sure the grass looks really good and killing all the weeds and keeping everything in place. Or maybe you're oriented toward shopping. And I was reading an article the other month about lady that ordered something online every day before going to work. Just, you know, it was part of her life. She had to, it was just the, kind of her therapy for herself. And she had all these things at home that she hadn't even opened yet. And she had maxed out credit cards and everything, was about $50,000 in debt from all of this. And it just, it possessed her. She was so oriented toward shopaholism. Or maybe you're oriented toward exercise, and you love to exercise. And, or maybe it's about making money, the typical thing that we tend to be oriented to. Or it's partying. You love the party life, or it's your academic success, or we could go on and on. And all of us have to guard our hearts about anything that we might love. Bad things, of course, but even the good things. And so, godliness is by definition 
a fundamental orientation toward God through Jesus Christ that impacts the way we live. Just the way if you are oriented toward anything, it's going to impact the way you live. Well, what does Peter tell us here about cultivating godliness? I would like to look at three main points. The first is this, God's provision for godliness. God's provision for godliness in verses 3 and 4. Look with me at those again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, those verses say a lot, two verses, but there's a lot there. I've summarized it in some brief sub-points here, and I have it this way. I want to look, kind of walk through what these two verses are saying. My sub-points are God's power through knowing Him, received through promises, which changes our heart. Those four sub-points, briefly, just as we unpack what Peter's saying here. First of all, God's power. And I want us to hear this, that God has given us provision for growing in godliness, just where you and I are. And verses 3 and 4 summarize this. So it says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now it says His divine power, and it refers to verse 2, which ends in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So it could refer to God's divine power, or it could be more specific, Christ's divine power. If we had to pick one of those, I would pick that it's referring specifically to Jesus Christ, and especially His divine power that Scripture elsewhere emphasizes that was declared and it's vindicated Christ through His resurrection from the dead. So because of Christ's death and resurrection, there's this resurrection power at work in believers. And Peter phrases it this way, that this power, his divine power, has granted, has given to us believers all things that pertain to life and godliness. Peter is shooting both barrels at once, saying, through Jesus Christ, through his divine power, through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, he's given Christians what they need for life and godliness, to live godly lives, in other words, in this present world. Not perfectly, we know. We will still stumble and fall in many ways, but to be growing in godliness, it's foundational. It's saying we have all that we need. It's very similar to Romans 6, where Paul is talking about the accusation that others are saying that if we're saved by grace, then let's sin that grace may abound. And and Paul says, may it never be. We who have died to sin, we can no longer live any more in it. And he just talks about this same foundational truth. He says, we've been baptized in Christ. We've been raised in Christ. And so we have died to sin, and we've been made alive in Christ. The same kind of thing there, Paul is using the language that Paul uses to describe the same foundational truth. We have everything we need in Christ. And then he says, therefore, 
Put to death sin. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God. It's the same kind of thing. Or in Colossians chapter 3, where at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, set your affection on things above, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, and then he starts to talk about godliness, put to death sin in your life, and he lists very many sins. It's the same foundational thing. When I was a boy, I was a big fan of Superman. I had all the comics. I still have them in my basement in a plastic bag. I'm hoping that they're worth a lot. And Michael talked about retirement. I'm banking on those comics you know, any Superman fan knows that as long as Superman is at a planet with a yellow sun, he's great. Now, he's from Krypton, which has a red sun, for those of you uninitiated. So he didn't have any special powers there, but he got here to Earth. He's got special powers. So all of Superman's adversaries are like nothing. Opponents, bad guys, super brilliant cr- criminal minds. Because Superman has the power of the yellow sun. And so... Bam, you know that nothing can hurt him. He flies. He's all powerful. It's great. And, you know, the reason I bring up that illustration is that think of Jesus, if I can say in a reverent way, Jesus like the power of the sun, but much better than that. And in a much better sense, providing the Christian with everything you and I need for godliness. It's really along the lines of the New Testament imperative, which essentially says, Christian, be who you are. The Bible has it everywhere. You are hidden with Christ in God. You have been seated in heavenly places in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. And then the imperative comes, the command comes, therefore, live this way. Put off sin. Put on Christ-likeness. Be like Christ. Put on love. It's the imperative, it's the command, but it's not just the raw command. It's based on the foundation of the indicative. The indicative leads to the imperative. You are a new creation in Christ. That's where the power comes through. Work out what God has worked out in you. So it's God's power, verse 3, and then at the end of verse 3, through knowing him. Notice that phrase, through the knowledge of him, again, probably referring to specifically Christ, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The calling here is is talking about the effectual calling of God, that Jesus Christ, by his effectual calling, calls us to himself and effectually brings us to new life in him. And that's the knowledge of him, this experiential conversion that we have come to know Jesus Christ through faith in Him, him who, he, the one who called us, and, and then it's to or by, as you might see in the notes, by His own glory and excellence. His glory and excellence summarizing the sinless attributes of Christ, His sinless life, His, what we might say, His active obedience on our behalf, living a sinless life on our behalf, His passive obedience, His sinless death on the cross for our sins. And so he's saying here, this is more than head knowledge. This is whole person conversion. His divine power has given everything we need through our coming to know him, our knowledge of him that has present ramifications. It's a, it's a whole 
hearted, knowing God. Maybe you've studied many countries in the world, and I kind of liken experiential knowledge to, to being in a country. We got to see Ireland a few years ago, so if anybody talks about Ireland, our ears perk up and say, oh, we're in Ireland. Oh, we were in this part of Ireland. You know, we're like experts. We were there for 10 days. We know that place really well. Maybe you've been a missionary somewhere, and so now if anybody mentions the nation that you were in, of course, there's a, an immediate bond there. Well, that's true experiential knowledge when you've lived someplace for many years. And my whole point here is that the kind of knowledge Peter is talking about here, which is so foundational, is truly coming to know Jesus Christ by faith, experiencing His grace, His new life in your heart. And that's the foundation. And then it goes on in verse 4. This is God's power through knowing Him received through promises, notice the beginning of verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So the promises of God are, we might say, the handholds the toeholds by which Christians exercise faith in Christ. All that Jesus Christ has done for us, he offers us in these great promises. God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He sent his only begotten son. And these promises of God are all procured by Christ He received them for us. He paid for them. They're all centered on Christ, and we appropriate them by holding to them by faith. In fact, let me just make an application right here. Uh, Much of our daily battle in the fight for godliness involves seeking to actively believe the promises of God at that moment at that moment of struggle, at that moment of temptation, at that moment of discouragement, at that moment of wrestling with unbelief, at that moment of buying in to the mindset of the world, all of that, a a lot of our daily fight for godliness is seeking to hold to the promises of God, trusting Jesus Christ through the Word of God, promises that He's revealed, whatever the particular need might be at that moment. Do you need strength? Trust the promises of God. Do you need comfort and encouragement? Trust the promises of God. Maybe it's courage in the face of fear. Maybe it's the need to, to have right priorities in your life and our priorities so easily get out of whack. Or maybe it's the power to love a particular person that's difficult to love in your life. Or maybe it's the need for enabling by the Spirit to turn away from a particular idolatry, something that tends to rule you. Maybe it's something from that list we began with. And whatever the particular temptation might be, it's very often a moment-by-moment battle to believe the promises of God right now. Yes, you believed them in the past. Yes, you've come to faith to faith in Christ, if you have, and there's been that fundamental change, and you belong to Christ, but now, as that 
godliness is being worked out in your life. You have to continue to believe the promises of God. And look how they're described. He's granted to us his precious and very great promises. And then he modifies it with this phrase, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That sounds like something mystical. And really what he's saying when he's going to list virtues that are godlike, he's, he's really saying that Christians can exemplify what we would call the communicable attributes of God, the attributes of God that Christians are to have as well. Some of the attributes of God we don't have at all. We're not omnipotent. We don't try to be omnipotent. Maybe some of us do, but you shouldn't try that. But the communicable attributes of God are what Peter, I think, is speaking about here, that we increasingly become partakers of the divine nature. We become like Christ. It's through the promises of God, fundamentally received through Christ, and then daily appropriated. Look at it like runner in a marathon. The marathoner probably knows the 26.3, whatever it is, mile course. Maybe he's ran the course or walked it or ridden his bike on it or driven the course and he knows it. But when he's running it, and if he's at mile 16 and there's a hill there, a big hill, probably the best thing psychologically for that marathoner to do is to just think, okay, what do I need to do to get up this hill? I need to breathe in and breathe out, put one step in front of the next, just get it out, I guess. I'm not sure what a marathoner would do. But in other words, he's not thinking about the big flat place up there and the place you go downhill and the finish line, he's got a sprint to beat the guy next to him. No, he's just thinking, get up this hill. And that's what Christian life is like. It's really, we shouldn't take on tomorrow's problems. That's what Jesus talks about when he says, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And God gives us grace for today. He doesn't give us all the grace for the rest of our life all at once. He gives it day after day. So, taking the promises of God for you, typically the battle is right now, today, maybe this hour, maybe this minute. How do I need to trust Jesus Christ now and the great promises he's given to us? We enter into, we appropriate God's provision of verses 3 and 4 by daily trusting, by daily treasuring Christ through the promises of God. And then the last phrase of this provision that I'm saying here in verses 3 and 4 is this last phrase, which changes our hearts. God's provision, God's power that through knowing Christ and received through the promises of Christ, which changes our hearts at the end of verse 4, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter is essentially saying, he's looking at the world and saying, the main problem in the world is sin, sinful desire. The main problem of the world isn't what kind of economy a nation has or what kind of political system or what kind of house you live in or what kind of whatever it is, clothes you wear. or what. It, the main problem in the world is the problem of sin. And he's specifically talking here about sin in our hearts, the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And he's basically saying here that Christians have escaped it. 
having escaped the corruption that is in the world. How does that occur? How does someone escape sinful desire and the corruption that is in the world because of it? You escape it through coming to faith in Christ. There's this fundamental change. From now on, we've died to sin. We've been made alive to God. So Peter is summarizing their Christian experience and saying that someone who's come to Christ has been fundamentally transformed. Yes, that's still being worked out, but there's been a heart change. And that's why we're able to cultivate godliness. Because Christ's work changes us through and through. Nothing else can do that. No one else in the world can do that. No system can do that. No regimen can do that. No religion, no legalistic behavior. It's Jesus Christ who transforms us. Maybe you've been watching the leaves change. I read an article the other week. Maybe some of you read it that was about why leaves change. I'm sure I've read this before. But basically, the article was saying that the reason we see the orange and the red and the yellow leaves is that as the days shorten, one of the reasons is that the uh, chlorophyll in the leaves is lessened because the days aren't as long and the plants don't get as much light. And green is what comes out when the plants and leaves get enough chlorophyll. So as that lessens, what shows up are colors that have already been there. And you start seeing them. I just make that application to this point, that Jesus Christ begins fundamentally to eradicate sin in our lives. And He's given us His Spirit. He's given us new life. The goal of working that out is, in a sense, letting that work out in the leaves of our life, letting it be evidence. It's something that fundamentally has taken place. Now work it out. So God's provision for our godliness, it's very real. Secondly, our responsibility to make every effort, verses 5 to 7. And here is where Peter uses this list. He says in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So Peter is calling these Christians to serious and diligent effort in cultivating godliness. It's so easy for us as Christians to go to one extreme or the other, to let it be all a matter of our willpower by which we change and to forget our total dependence on God, or we go over in the air of total dependence and we lose sight of the fact that we must cultivate, we must strive, we must make every effort. So there's a balance here. I like the way Jerry Bridges talks about it in one of his books. He calls it dependent responsibility. We are responsible, but we're dependent on Christ. Dependent responsibility, or he said you could call it responsible dependence. Either way, it's the same thing. And, and that's the balance here. Peter has talked about the provision. We're utterly dependent on God's divine power But now that we have that and are receiving that and stand on that and hold to the promises of God every day, we're to strive to put on these virtues. It's not wrong to strive to put on these things. It's like the fruit of the Spirit. All the fruit of the Spirit that Galatians 5 talks about are things that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. But you can take all five of those and find scriptures that command 
Christians to do them. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. The Holy Spirit works in our life. The Bible says, the command comes, rejoice. Is that a gift of God or is that something I strive for? Yes, both. That's, that's the way it is. So work out with active seeking. Fight. The Bible uses these terms. Run the race. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body to bring it into subjection. He's not talking about literally doing that, but he's talking about this discipline, resolve, strive. We could look after, at text after text that talk about this. Let me just read one or two. How about 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12? But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Look at those verbs. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold of. Very active verbs. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 8. You you could look at verse after verse of this. Paul there says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, just that as you receive from us how you ought to live and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. In other words, he's saying, you know how to live and please God, do so more and more. He doesn't say, just lie back, wait till you feel the movement of the Spirit, and then you will be carried up somehow on clouds and you will be doing God's will. No, he says it's something you have to strive to do. There is this dependent responsibility. Romans 6, I already talked about that, but it's interesting that there, after Paul talks about this same matter of the provision, he says in very powerful terms, after he's talked about all we have in Christ, we've died with Christ, we've been raised to Him, and in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. In other words, he's saying, don't let sin reign anymore. Don't give the members of your body to sin, to obey it. And the question for us is this. Is this how I am living my Christian life? Is this how I am pursuing godliness this week? Not haphazard, but focused. Is that, or am I buying into some kind of twisted theology or kind of comfortable theology that just says, I coast? I'm not trying to be harder than the Word of God is, but I want you to hear what Scripture is saying. Make every effort. Peter repeats it in Second Peter. He uses that phrase three times. In fact, when you get to the end of Second Peter chapter 3, after the epistle is just about done, he says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, you're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, which he's described, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. He uses that same phrase. It's one that he likes. And then we see this list of virtues in chapter 1, in verses 5 through 7. And we don't have a lot of time to go through them all in depth. But notice, they're not merely outward conformity. They have to do with heart issues as well. They're not just legalistic behaviors. The Bible is very rich. It talks about both the outward things and the inward attitude of heart. But we must give all effort to work this out in our daily lives. And let's just look at them. The first is faith. 
In a sense, he's already talked about this for this very reason. Make every effort to supplement or add to your faith. And then there's this list of things. He's talked about knowing him already. So there's faith. And really, you shouldn't look at this list as if it's connected in a real precise way, like one is the building block to the next. This was a a literary device that Peter is using for emphasis. It was a popular device in his day. Probably, if there's any emphasis on the order, it's the first and last. The first one of these is faith, very important because it's the beginning of our walk with Christ, and love at the very end. But he says, add to your faith virtue or goodness. It's the same verse that was used in verse 3, excellence. And he's basically saying, God's quality of moral excellence, seek to be like Christ. And then then he says, and to add to that knowledge. And knowledge here probably has a different sense of coming to know Christ. It probably here more specifically has the ability to, to, to discern God's will, how to please him in your daily life. You look at Colossians 1 verse 9, and Paul's praying for the Colossians that they would be able to discern the will of God and to please him in every way. And then he says, add to knowledge self-control, the power to avoid falling prey to some particular temptation. Peter is saying, look, you live in this corrupt world. And don't we all feel this? There's temptation around all of us all the time. And to face temptation, you need to develop self-control. It's not merely something of our own willpower. It's founded on what Christ has done, but it's something we need to cultivate. And really, in our world, self-control, something you don't hear about very much. And I feel especially for you young folks growing up in our society, which is increasingly corrupt. You're going to have to cultivate self-control. You're going to have to avoid some things that are just bad and wrong. And then he says, add to self-control, steadfastness. Steadfastness or endurance, the ability to bear up under. If you think of self-control needed to face the temptation of sinful pleasure around us, steadfastness is the ability to face the testing of suffering, of trials, of hardship. And the Christian's calling is to remain steadfast in his or her faith in times of trial. That's not an easy thing to do, especially if a trial goes on and on. I haven't seen a movie that is out, Soul Surfer, about this young girl, Bethany Hamilton, who in 2003, on October 31st, was surfing on Tunnel Beach in Kauai, and a shark came along, and kids, don't be afraid of this because, you know, it's very rare. It's more likely you'd get hit in the car on the way home than get bit by a shark. But, so don't stay away from the beach if that's where you like to go. But her left arm was bit off right below the shoulder by a shark. And she was 13. And apparently she wrote a book about this and is a motivational speaker because she was operated on the next day. Her dad was scheduled to have knee surgery. She took his place and had surgery. Her arm was gone. And within a month, she was surfing with one arm and had to relearn all of how to surf. What what an amazing story this is. But my point is that think of the endurance, think of the steadfastness it took for this young girl to cultivate, to not give up on her life. 
And she did that, a remarkable example of human endurance. And then there's adding to steadfastness, godliness. We've already talked about that, a Godward orientation of your life that comes out in the way you live. And then adding to that, brotherly affection, that's the word Philadelphia, and primarily expresses love among Christians. We're to especially see to that. But then the final virtue is love, agape love. Now, now sometimes those words aren't to be distinguished, but here they are in this sense that love is the crowning virtue. It's all-encompassing. It's what we owe everyone, even our enemies. We're called to love them. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list, but it's a good summary. There are other New Testament lists like this. And the goal for us in terms of our godliness is to be seeking to cultivate these Christ-like characteristics, to be growing at them. And I just want to ask you, are you working at this with dependent responsibility? About a decade ago, we wanted to clean up our basement because we knew we wanted to finish off part of it and put up a wall and put a rug down there and have it be a room that the kids can use. So our family all got together and thought, okay, what are we going to do? We've got to get to this. And we, we read about, you know, somehow I read an article about this. The idea is we go down there for a half an hour and we work because it was so depressing to even want to go down there. Where do we start? You just kind of start, where do I start? I can't, you know, and they tell you how to get the boxes, one to give away, one to throw away, one to store, you know. So we went down there. A couple of us went down. Some of the kids went down with us. We worked for half an hour and then we felt a little bit better. And then a couple of days later, we went down again. And as we went along, as the weeks went by, it just took, seemed like it took weeks and weeks to do this, we slowly cleaned up the basement. And we got the little room built there. It was great. We still have it there. Now, the storage room is a mess again, but so we've got to do this again. But my illustration is this. If you look at your Christian life, you may feel overwhelmed thinking, oh, what can I work on? God has given you the provision in Christ to go to the basement, so to speak, and start working in the power of Jesus Christ, with the promises of God, to cultivate what pleases God. You may feel like it's hopeless. You may feel like there's too much to do. Start today. Start tomorrow. Start tonight when you go home and start praying, Lord, what are you calling me to change? Make every effort. Well, my last point, I just want to give you two motivations. My last point is the importance of godliness. And I knew I wouldn't have much time for this, so I just want to give this to you, verses 8 through 11. Two motives here to think about. Number one, growth in godliness makes us fruitful. Verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So godliness makes you more fruitful in your life. Just think of it as godliness produces the aroma of Christ that others see in you. And then the other thing is that growth in godliness increases our assurance. It increases our assurance. And that, that's what verses 9 through 11 is like. Peter is really having in view the false prophets that are harassing the church that he's writing to, Christians he's addressing here, and, and how they use grace as an excuse for license to just live in sin. And he's saying that they've forgotten, they've been cleansed from their former sins. And in verse 10, that key verse, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent 
to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, Peter is not talking about the kind of fundamental direct assurance that is at the, really the heart of the Christian assurance through the promises of God, through what Jesus did. He's talking about what I would call indirect assurance or secondary assurance, if you want to use that term, of seeing the fruit in our life and seeing, yes, God is at work. That is a type of assurance, and it is something that is clearly here something we're to be working at. Be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Leave with you the thought from the 1 Corinthians 9 text where Paul talks about we run to attain an imperishable crown. They, the person in the Greek race of that time, a perishable crown. Remember these motivations. God would have you be fruitful. God would have you to be growing in godliness so that you'd be growing in assurance that God is at work in your life. Make it your goal to cultivate and to pursue godliness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. What an encouragement it is to us. We need your strengthening. We need your blessing. We need to be reminded, even as Peter says, he calls them to remembrance to these things. Help us then to be reminded with these truths, to go forth this week into the the battle, into the fight of faith, into the race that we're running, and let it be to the glory of your great name. Help us to be soldiers of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.